Uh, great to be back at uh, Kingscliff Church preaching. I've really enjoyed the sermons that have happened in my absence. And uh, one of the great advantages of having the YouTube channel that we have, the Kingscliff YouTube channel, is that you can keep up to speed with what's happening at our local church, even if you can't be here. And uh, I want to say that I texted this to Jared just last night. I said, Jared, I thought your sermon on Matthew 5 was good. I thought your sermon on Matthew 6 was great. And I thought your sermon on Matthew chapter 7 was the best sermon I've ever heard you preach. And uh, the Lord is really blessing this young man in so many ways. He's given him a real gift of communication, a real gift of a passion for Scripture and an an ability to communicate it. I've also enjoyed Pastor David Halp's sermons. They've been great as well. I'll be preaching over the next several weeks and looking forward to going through Matthew chapters 10, 11, 12, and 13. So let's pray together and get right into the text of Scripture. Father in heaven, we're looking forward to what you have in store for us today. The prayer of my heart, Father, is that these songs that we have sung would not be sung in vain, but that truly you would be to us the fairest thing, that you would be the most beautiful thing and the most appreciated thing. Father, the prayer of my heart is that today's service will draw us nearer to you. It already has in the offering, in the prayer, and in the singing, the beautiful children's story that reminds us of the power of a thank you. But we pray now, Father, that as we turn our attention to Scripture, to the text of Scripture, that you would open our hearts, illumine our minds, and send us out with a clear, defining, practical, relatable message. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Let everyone say, Amen. All right, let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. Our series is titled Incomparable, and today our sermon is titled No Fear. No Fear. I actually tried to come up with something a little more original, a little more catchy than that, but I was unable to do so, so you'll have to forgive me. We are now into the fourth of seven chapters in our Matthew series. There are 28 chapters in the book of Matthew. We have been through the first four under the subheading of Son. We saw the emphasis on Jesus there, not only as the Son of God, but also as the Son of Mary and of Joseph. In chapters 5, 6, and 7, we have the Sermon on the Mount that Jared took us through ably, and we saw Jesus as preacher and public communicator. Pastor David Haupt, who's not with us today, he's over in Bray Park, then took us through two superb sermons on Matthew chapters 8 and 9, where we saw Jesus as healer. And we begin now in chapters 10, 11, and 12, a transition to Jesus as leader, which will pave the way for teacher, seer, and finally conqueror. Let's go to Matthew chapter 10 and just begin right in verse 1. Matthew chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. It says, And when he had called his 12 disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sicknesses and all kinds of disease. Now, the names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, as well. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus, and Labias, whose surname was Thaddeus. Simon, the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. Verse 5 says, These 12 Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter a city of the Samaritans, 
but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Let's just stop right there for a bit. First of all, you will remember that a crucial feature that we have already been exposed to again and again in Matthew's gospel is Jesus' repeated and positive interactions with outcasts or Gentiles. We've seen this right from Matthew chapter 1, where Jesus is introduced in his genealogy as being the descendants of three women, all of whom had Gentile ancestry. In fact, in the sermons that we've had with Pastor David, just the last two chapters, just just take a look very quickly at Matthew chapter 8, or perhaps recall with me as I look through them here. The first thing that Jesus does after the Sermon on the Mount is he cleanses a leper by touching him. Lepers were outcasts. They were medical outcasts, social outcasts, theological outcasts, and Jesus yet yet treats him very well. Jesus then affirms in the strongest possible language a centurion by saying that he had not seen such great faith in the whole of Israel. After that, Jesus uh, heals two men that were demon-possessed that would have been regarded certainly as living on the fringes of society. That's chapter 8. Chapter 9, Jesus forgives and heals a paralytic. Uh, He invites a tax collector, a hated tax collector, to be one of his chosen disciples. He then lets a woman who had an issue of blood, which made her ceremonially unclean under the the, uh, Jewish law. And he heals two blind men, a mute man as well. So in each of these, in in these two chapters especially, chapters 8 and 9, We see Jesus fraternizing and spending time with and affirming people that it would have been regarded as social and societal outcasts in his day. Whether it's a woman who was bleeding or a man with leprous sores on his body or even a Roman centurion, a hated Roman. This has become a central feature of Matthew's gospel. So it strikes us as a little bit surprising that here in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus would say, hey, look, I send you out the 12, but do not go to the Gentiles. Don't go into the city of those Samaritans. Jesus here almost seems to be temporarily playing to the existing prejudices of his disciples and of first century Judaism. I'm sending you out. Go announce the good news. Go heal and go cast out demons and go perform acts of restoration and of healing, but don't go to the Gentiles. Don't go into a city of the Samaritans, which seems a little out of tenor and out of, out of harmony with what we've been seeing and been exposed to already in Matthew's gospel. What's going on here? Well, part of the answer is that God's plan for bringing the gospel to the world was always to fulfill his promises to Israel. When God originally called Abraham back in the book of Genesis, he said, Abraham, in you, all the families, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so when Jesus here says, don't go to the Gentiles and don't go to the Samaritans, he's not saying so out of prejudice or, oh, stay away from those icky people. What he's saying is, because of the covenantal arrangement that God has with Israel, because of his promises to them and because of of his passion to see his promises to Abraham and his descendants fulfilled, we must first go to them to extend to them one final invitation to be God's covenantal people. So this is not, in fact, radically out of harmony. It's quite in harmony with what we've been exposed to up to this point. Look at verse 7. What should we say, Jesus? You can imagine the disciples might have asked. What what should we say when we go to these towns, when we go to these villages, when we go to these urban and rural areas and announce that you are coming? What is it that we should say? Verse 7 says, and as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
in the chapters up to this point, Matthew chapters 1 to 9, Jesus has presented, presented himself as Israel's Messiah King. And we've already talked a little bit about that. How Jesus retraced the history of national Israel. And in so doing, he revealed himself as the long-awaited and long-anticipated Messiah, as Israel's true king. In fact, the, the, the fact that Jesus selects not eight disciples, not ten disciples, not eleven, but twelve disciples is itself pregnant with significance and meaning. A meaning that would not have been lost on any of the first century uh, Jews that were aware of Jesus. Why twelve? Clearly, even within the embryonic selection of these 12 disciples, Jesus is advertising his plan to renew, to restore, and to revitalize Israel. Jesus has, in evidence after evidence, in situation after situation, presented himself as Israel's king. In fact, that phrase, the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, as you go, tell everybody that the kingdom of heaven is here. Tell everybody that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that it's close. Well, of course, the kingdom has a king, and Jesus has presented himself as that king. might be a little bit difficult to see, but let me me just read this for you. First of all, this phrase, the kingdom of heaven, is a uniquely, uh, it's, it's a term that's unique to Matthew. We don't find that phrase in any of the other gospels. Mark, Luke, and John prefer the more familiar, the kingdom of God. And most theologians agree, and I'm inclined to uh, agree as well, that that there is basically, uh, it's synonymous, that there's consistency, that what Matthew uses as the term, the kingdom of heaven, Mark, Luke, and John simply refer to as the kingdom of God. But this phrase, the kingdom of heaven in Matthew's gospel, is hugely significant for a few reasons. First of all, we're introduced to John preaching the nearness of the kingdom of heaven. That's in Matthew chapter 3, verse 2. John the Baptist, Jesus' elder cousin, began his public ministry by saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe. Jesus then takes the baton from John and begins to preach a very similar message in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, just after coming out of the temptation in the wilderness. Jesus preached, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus then opened his Sermon on the Mount, that longest sermon in any of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, three full chapters. When Jesus opens that sermon, he says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Opened the whole sermon, opened his whole public ministry with an announcement about the soon arrival of the kingdom of heaven and those that would be participants therein. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus said, is uniquely for those that are poor in spirit. He then closed the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, when he said, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not do all this great stuff in your name and, and, and all of this? And Jesus says, these will not be allowed into or will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. And then finally in Matthew chapter 8, verse 11... Leading up to what we've got here, this is quite fascinating. Jesus, after he affirmed the Roman centurion and said, many will come from the east and the west and will sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says that Gentiles will be invited invited wholesale, welcomed wholesale into the kingdom of heaven. And so already we're in Matthew chapter 10 and the kingdom of heaven has played a prominent role in Matthew's gospel and in Jesus' announcement of the message that he came to bear. There can be no divorcing of Jesus' central message in the gospel of Matthew from this idea of the kingdom. It comes up again and again. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven. John initiates the announcement about the kingdom of heaven. He hands the baton to Jesus who picks it up, who then begins to speak of the kingdom of heaven. And now Jesus places that baton squarely in the hands of his disciples 
who Matthew here calls apostles. It's the first word, it's the first time that the word apostles is used in scripture. It comes from the Greek word apostolos. Apostolos, it means literally just sent. Those that are sent. Jesus has received the kingdom of heaven baton from John. Jesus is now passing it on to those that are sent. What should we say, Jesus, when we come to these towns and to these hamlets and to these villages? What should we say? Jesus says, say this. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The king is coming and the kingdom is at hand. Now, this is quite interesting because the whole idea of the kingdom of heaven has been something that has been for many quite mysterious. Just where is the kingdom of heaven? We could point, as it were, to the kingdom of Australia, that is the nation of Australia, or of America, or of Monaco, or, or any geographical, any place that you could plot geographically on a map, we could say, oh yeah, there's the kingdom, there's the kingdom, there's the kingdom. But what does it mean the kingdom is coming, the kingdom is advancing, the kingdom is nearly here? Well, one of the most important things in understanding this idea of the kingdom is grasping the concept that it is not geographic. The kingdom of heaven is not a place that could be plotted on a GPS. The kingdom of heaven is found in whoever honors Jesus as their king. The king, oh, great to hear some amens. Man, I feel like I'm back in America. The kingdom of heaven is found wherever somebody honors Jesus as the true king. Jesus would say it this way in the gospel of Luke, chapter 17, verses 20 and 21. The kingdom of heaven does not come with observation. He couldn't point to it and say, hey, there it is. I observe it over there, or I see it there, or this is the border. Here you're in this kingdom, and now you step over the boundary, and now you're in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says it's not like that. The kingdom of heaven does not come with observation. Well, how then does it come? No one's going to say, see here or see there. And then Jesus said something that is very insightful and hugely interpretively helpful in understanding what the kingdom of heaven is. Jesus said, for indeed the kingdom of God, again synonymous with the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is where, according to Jesus? It's within you. The kingdom of God is not some place that could be uh, located on a map, the kingdom of heaven exists where somebody in their innermost heart, in their innermost soul, somebody in their family, somebody in their life, somebody in their checkbook, somebody in their, in their web history, somebody in their recreation time, somebody in their family time, where somebody is announcing by word and especially action, Jesus is my king, Jesus would say, there's the kingdom of heaven. And there's the kingdom of heaven. And there's the kingdom of heaven. And there's the kingdom of heaven. So when Jesus places the baton into the hands of the disciples and says, go and tell the good news. Well, what should we say? Tell them the kingdom of heaven is near. It's advancing. It's arriving. It is at hand. Now, things get really kind of exciting here because you would think, you would think that this would be good news and would be received positively. I almost called the sermon good news, bad reception. But I knew the moment I said bad reception, you would all think cell phone service, right? Cell phone, I have bad reception, I can't hear you. Good news, bad reception. It's not being received as good news. And that is the announcement and the warning that Jesus gives. So to summarize up to this point, the kingdom of heaven is found wherever Jesus is honored and loved as the true king. But where Jesus is honored as king, persecution will inevitably arise. This is what Jesus says. Now let's follow this through. Verse 8, he says, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. In other words, you're not doing this for money. You're not doing this for any payback that you might receive. 
provide neither gold nor silver nor copper in your money belts nor a bag for your journey. Don't even take two shirts. Don't take extra sandals or staffs for a worker is worthy of his food. He then goes on to say, look, when you come into a town, find an honest person and reside in that honest person's house. Jump down to verse 16. Beginning in verse 16, for the rest of the chapter, in fact, you'll notice if your Bible's like mine and the words of Jesus are in red, the rest of the chapter are the words of Jesus. It's all in red. As Jesus is now transitioning from preacher and healer to leader, he's sending his disciples out, his apostolos, sending them out with this message that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But frankly, he doesn't send them out saying that everything is going to be great and it's going to be awesome and you're going to do awesome things. It's going to be easy. It's going to be smooth sailing. I'm God after all, and everything's going to work out just fine. That's not what he says. In fact, he announces, he, he, he gives them some really bad news, some really disturbing and troubling news, and it's going to become the cornerstone of what we're going to talk about today. Look at verse 16. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Well, already that sounds terrifying, right? A sheep would be justifiably afraid of a wolf. Therefore, be as wise as serpents and harmless as doves. There are going to be difficult situations out there that you're going to have to navigate. You're going to have to be intelligent. You're going to have to be shrewd. You're going to have to be clever. You're going to have to be wise because people will not receive you positively and amicably. You're going to have to navigate some very difficult social and, and personal situations. Verse 17, beware of men. Notice the language, beware. When somebody puts a beware of dog sign on their fence, it's because the dog is mean. The dog is something that you don't just want to go up to and start petting. Beware, he says. They will deliver you up to councils. They will scourge you. That means to whip you in their synagogues. You will be brought before governors and kings for my name's sake and as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. Verse 19, but when they deliver you up, not if, not this might happen, not this could happen, there is an inevitability here. This is what is going to happen. You will not be positively received in every quarter in which you venture. When they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you will speak, for it will be given to you in that very hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speaks, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Verse 21, now brother will deliver up brother to death. Verse 22, you will be hated by all nations, uh, or, or you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end will be saved. Verse 23, when they persecute you, not they might, not it could happen, not perchance, when they persecute you, flee. That's very interesting. Jesus here, God in flesh, God on earth, the infinite, illimitable, omnipotent God of the earth is saying, hey, when these bad guys try to get you, run. Run for your lives. He doesn't say, no, I'll make you impervious to their arrows. Their swords will glance off of your skin in a miraculous fashion. The fires will not hurt you and the blades will not be able to sever your head from your body. Jesus is like, no, when, that, when things start to go south in a certain town, flee. Get out of there. In fact, he goes so far as to say that if they don't receive you in the town and you still are intact with your life, kick the dust off your shoes and race. Get out of there. Flee for your life. Verse 24, a disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, that's a demonic figure. Hey, if they have called me a demonic figure, what will they do to you? How much more will they call those of his own household? Therefore, do not fear them. There is nothing covered that will not be revealed and nothing hidden that will be not, not be known. Whatever I tell you in the dark, speak in the light. And what you hear in the ear, preach on the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. 
but rather fear him, capital H, God, rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground, but that your father's, apart from your father's will, but the very hairs of your head are numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Jesus basically says, go out there and announce the kingdom. The kingdom is found wherever people honor me and who realize that I am the king, the Messiah that has come. But persecution will inevitably arise. Jesus has already said this back in the Sermon on the Mount. In those initial beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the, uh, the, the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And Jesus comes to the last of those beatitudes and he says, blessed are those that are persecuted for righteousness' sake. There is a kind of inevitability about this, and it's, a, it's almost a helpless inevitability. I mean, the language of I send you forth as sheep among wolves is not exactly confidence-inspiring. It's going to be really hard. It's going to be really difficult. People are going to hate you. They're going to deliver you up to councils and to synagogues and to situations that are going to be very difficult, out of your control. It's going to be complicated. It's going to be socially uh, awkward. You're going to have to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. And when you're brought, perhaps, into the midst of a difficult situation where you need to stand up and give an answer, don't worry overly about what you'll say because God will help you. Right? This is not exactly like a particularly good fourth quarter coach's speech. Right? He basically says you're going to go out and it's going to be really, really tough. There is an inevitability about the persecution that will rise. And here's a question. The question for us today in 2016, and I think a lot of us wonder about this. We think, man, it's, it's, so, it's so different now. It's so difficult now in, in some ways to be a Christian because there is no persecution. There is no difficulty. There really is nobody who's standing as a martyr for their faith. Certainly not in Australia. Right? No, no Christians are being persecuted widespread, not in, not in America either. There are certainly parts of the world where this is the case. But for those of us here in Australia, 2016, the question is not are we being persecuted, but are we persecutable? And yes, I made that word up. The question is not are we being persecuted. The answer to that in this congregation is uniformly no. Now, I suppose that if you decided to honor Sabbath and to keep Sabbath, you could be fired from your job, or if you stood up for Jesus, you could, you know, somebody could give you a smirk, or somebody might think you're, you know, overly religious, or whatever. I suppose that on a, on a, on a, macro, uh, a micro level, there's no doubt in my mind that some of you have experienced social persecution or alienation or being ostracized. I get that. But in terms of the kind of persecution that Jesus is describing, scourging, being delivered up to councils, etc., that's not happening widespread in Australia. It's not happening widespread in any first world country that I'm aware of. But it is happening. It is happening in the world in places like China and in other places of the Middle East. My question for you today, you personally, you, you that's sitting right there today, is not are you being persecuted? I know the answer to that question. My question is, are you even persecutable? Is there anything that is sufficiently radical in your Christianity that would merit persecution? Is there anything that would cause somebody to say, oh, this person really rubs me wrong, their stance for Jesus, their commitment to God, and their fidelity to Scripture, oh, that really... I think this is the larger question. Not, are we being persecuted? But is there even anything in us that's sufficiently radical or dangerous enough to the kingdom of darkness that would merit persecution in the first place? The book that was responsible for turning my heart to Jesus almost or 20 years ago now is a book called The Great Controversy, written by one of the founders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And in that book, Ellen White writes these words. 
The Apostle Paul declares that all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Will happen. There's that inevitability. It will happen. Just like Jesus. This will happen. I send you out a sheep among wolves. She then asks a salient and provocative question. If it was provocative in the 19th century when she wrote this, it would be far more provocative today. Why is it then that persecution seems in a great degree to slumber? Where has all the persecution gone? She gives a fascinating answer. The only reason, not because society's become more intelligent, more educated, and more widespread in its tolerance of diverse and pluralistic views. That's not what she says. The only reason is that the church has conformed to the world's standard and therefore awakens no opposition. The only reason. The religion that is current in our day, it was certainly true in 1888 and it would be true today in 2016, is not of the pure and holy character that marked the Christian faith in the days of Christ and his apostles. So the question for us today is not, why is there no persecution? We know why there's no persecution. And it's not because society has suddenly become more pluralistic, relevant, or relative, and, and uh, tolerant. It's because there's just not that much in most of our lives to persecute. As the old saying goes, if you were accused in a court of law of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Why is it that persecution seems to slumber? She says it's simple. The only reason is the church of today is not the apostolic church. There's just not enough there's not enough rough around the edges. There's not enough passion around the edges. There's not enough primitive godliness around the edges to elicit anything like a satanic attack on the church. He's comfortable. We're comfortable. Everybody's comfortable. Even our chairs are comfortable. Right? That's one of the great things about the Kingscliff Church. It's been one of the major pushbacks that we've gotten about this desire to refurb the church. But the chairs are so comfortable. What a grand illustration of the Christian life in Australia in 2016. They're so we don't want to suffer discomfort. No, 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 no. Things should be comfortable, and it's hot in here, and the air conditioning, and it's crowded. We want comfortable. We want comfortable seats. We want comfortable Christianity. We want comfortable lives. We want comfortable incomes. Stop talking about the Bring It campaign. I want my comfort. I need my comfort. I need the things that make my life easy. Jesus did not say it would be easy for the early disciples, but we have almost a sense of entitlement about the ease of the Christian life. It should be easy. There should be a level of comfort. There should be a level of peace and of safety. Now, I want to ask you a question. I wonder if anybody here will get the right answer. Does anybody know what is the most frequently repeated command in the Bible? The whole Bible, Genesis to Revelation, the most frequently repeated command. Oh, I heard Blair said it. Correct. The command that is repeated more often in the Bible, both Old and New Testaments, in fact, in various formulations and permutations, it is repeated hundreds of times. Hundreds of times. And it comes in various phrasings. But it's do not be afraid. That occurs more than love your neighbors yourself, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Do not be afraid. Sometimes it comes like this. Do not fear or fear not. Do not be afraid. I don't know if you noticed or not, but three times in what we just read, Jesus says these words. Three times. Let's go back and look at them again. Verse 26. Therefore, do not fear. Do not fear them. 
Verse 28, and do not fear those who kill the body. And then verse 30, do not fear therefore. I love this. Jesus says there will be scourgings, there will be persecution, there will be a a kind of inevitability to the going out and proclaiming that Jesus is king and that the kingdom has arrived, but don't be afraid, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. And what I find particularly fascinating is why he says not to be afraid. Most of us would probably think, well, why not be afraid? And we might say something like this, well, because God is in control and everything's going to be all right. That would be our sort of, you know, hey, God is in control, God has all power, everything's going to turn out in the end. That is not Fascinatingly, that is not what Jesus says when he first says, do not be afraid. Jesus says, don't be afraid, and here's why. It's very interesting. Verse 26, don't be afraid of them, for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. That is a funny reason to not be afraid. I don't know how you feel, but I find the full disclosure of my life to be a terrifying prospect. How about you? The full disclosure, the full unveiling and unfolding of everything that's in your life, all the decisions that you've made, all the things that you've done, the money that you've spent, the way you've spent it, the way you've treated, the way you've talked, the way you've acted, the way you've sinned, the way you've lied, the way you've been dishonest, the way you've gossiped. I don't know how you feel, but for me, when I think about the full disclosure that everything that has been secret will be known, I don't think to myself, yeah, I'm not afraid of that. But fascinatingly, that is exactly what Jesus says. Don't be afraid. Because everything that's secret will be uncovered. I thought it would be fun to find out what people were afraid of. And so this morning I sent out about 75 texts. Some of you received that text. And I said, hey, look, I'm preaching on fear. And I want to know what you're afraid of. What are you afraid of? And lots of people responded, not just from this congregation. In fact, most of them were from all over the world, from the United States and Africa and other places. And I I just said, what are you afraid of? In all honesty and in all integrity... What are you afraid of? I want to give you the answers that I received back. I was going to pick out the best ones, but there were no bad ones. So I'm going to give them all to you. I told them that they would be anonymous, so you can do your best to try to figure out who they are, but uh, they're from all over the world. So this wife and mother of two said, dying, public speaking, snakes, sharks, turbulence on planes, and the dark. That's what I'm afraid of. This husband and father of three said that all of my kids would not be in the kingdom with me or that I would be outside of the walls of the city looking in. That's what I'm afraid of. As we read through these, find which you are resonant with and, which, and those which you regard as not your fear, not, not a point of particular sensitivity or fear for you. And this husband and father of two said, I'm afraid I don't have enough faith to trust him and allow him to heal A teenage boy said, I'm afraid of change, strangers, of being the center of attention. I'm afraid of needles and of failure. Husband and father of two said, I'm afraid of being unloved and of being cast aside. A wife with no children said, I'm afraid of being unloved and alone. That will be a recurrent theme. This husband and father of two said, I'm afraid of being single again and of my children not being in heaven. A teenage girl said, I'm afraid of dying and of leaving my family behind, of failing and of people. I love the honesty there, the rawness. 
This husband and father of three gave a one-word answer. Myself. What are you afraid of? What are you really afraid of? He said, I'm afraid of myself. A husband and father of two said, I'm super afraid of getting in the way of not only God changing me, but also using me to help save others. I'm also afraid of the dark. A husband and father of five said, sharks, the loss of a child or the loss of their salvation. Sharks comes up a lot. A single father of three says, I'm afraid of not overcoming certain habits and of not meeting expectations. I think there's a lot of males in here who could relate to that as a fear, not meeting expectations, whether familial or work or societal. A single man engaged to be married, heights scare me a lot now and of being old and alone. What are you afraid of? This wife and mother of one said, of feeling unloved or uncared for, of being abandoned, rejected by those closest to me, of feeling unaccepted and being vulnerable. That's what I'm afraid of. A single man in his 20s said, I'm afraid of rejection or abandonment. Again, which of these are you personally, as they're read, are you finding identification or are you finding separation from them? A single man in his 20s said, I am most fearful of myself and of the rejection of others. A wife with no children, I am my family or close friends dying, becoming too comfortable and too attached to the things of the world. That ties in really nice with the idea of comfort we were just discussing. A single man in his 20s, sharks, going through the breakup of a relationship or having God say, I never knew you. A husband and father of three said, being dead for eternity scares the crap out of me and being held under a huge wave for way too long. Probably in that order. A teenage girl said, my biggest fear is disappointing the people who I love or who I look up to. Love the honesty. A single man in his 20s, speeding tickets, parents dying, not making a big enough impact on eternity. A wife and mother of three. My greatest fear is that my kids will choose a path that doesn't involve God. I'm in tears even as I type this. A lot of parents in here can relate to that. A single woman in her 20s says, I have dreams, but I'm afraid of never being able to fulfill them. I have a fear of missed potential. A husband and father of two. Heights, sharks, failing as a husband and father, and never seeing David Ashrick again. Clearly an American. <laughs> Husband and father of one, losing those close to me or them getting a debilitating disease and whether Tottenham can in fact finish above Arsenal. This is the stuff that real fears are made of. The standings of the English Premier League. A single man in his 20s, I'm afraid of failure, failing to live up to my true potential, fail, failing to be successful, failing to be worthy. I just realized I had this fear this last week. A wife with no children, being alone, my husband dying, cancer, sharks, losing my mobility so I can't engage in sports. A teenage girl, I'm afraid of birds and being up the front to the center of attention. A wife and mother of three, of not doing or being able to lead those who have been entrusted to me in this life to their Savior. 
A wife and mother of five, I'm afraid of being tortured in the time of trouble. Just shoot me. I'm afraid of being lost and of snakes. A husband and father of two, failure. Failing to be a good parent, failure to be good enough to work at work in relationships, life. Failure to have enough money at my age, struggling in old age. A teenage boy, sharks. A husband and father of two, my children dying before me. A husband and father of three, disappointing someone I love and the complete objective truth about myself. Something to be afraid of. A teenage boy said, I am afraid of rejection, being rejected by someone or a girl, but mostly public rejection. Coming down toward the end, a husband with no children, that's an easy question. My biggest fear in life is disappointing people. No one said nothing. Whether you found deep resonance with many or some or most of those fears is not the point. You are afraid of something. The fact that the most frequently repeated command, and it's not just a command, friends, it's a promise. The fact that the most frequently repeated promise in all of Scripture is do not be afraid. God is sending a message in the... He said it to Moses. He said it to Abraham. He said it to Joshua. He said it to Matthew. He said it throughout the Old and the New Testaments. Do not be afraid. 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 No one said nothing. The person who says they have no fear is lying. The person who says they have no fear is afraid of facing the truth about themselves. I love Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 8. Do not be afraid of their faces, for I will rescue you, says the Lord. Wrapped up in many of those fears that we saw there on the screen is the faces, somebody giving us a look of disapproval, a look of rejection, a look that we're foolish, a look that we don't belong, a certain clickishness that creates an us and a them. And we're afraid of that. We're afraid of being on the outside. We're afraid of not being in the in crowd. We're afraid of being isolated and alienated from those that are around us. We're afraid of that. And yet many of us create those situations for others. But we ourselves harbor that very fear. Some of the great promises in Scripture are about fear. 1 John chapter 4, verse 18. There is no fear in love. Can the church say amen? Perfect love, I love this, drives out fear. I, perfectly I purposely chose the NIV there because it drives out fear. Fear has to be driven from the soul. And it's only driven out by one thing. Fear cannot drive out fear. Only love can draw drive out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. God has not given us the spirit of fear. Can the church say Amen. He has given us the spirit of power and of love, which we just saw a moment ago, cast out fear and of a sound mind. God's promise to you and God's promise to the disciples was, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. And I'm going to tell you, here's why not to be afraid. Number one, God has conquered death. A large percentage of those fears revolved around either your own death or the death of a loved one. And I want to tell you here today... Jesus has conquered death. Put your faith in him. You can today be banished and away and done with all fear of death to you or your loved ones. Today, you can say, I am no longer afraid of death. Doesn't mean you're looking forward to it. Doesn't mean you can't wait for it. But it just means you're not afraid of it. 
Number two, he knows you perfectly. God knows you perfectly. That's the thing that Jesus said. Do not fear because everything that's dark will be hidden. God knows you perfectly. He knows who you are. That fear of rejection, that fear of being alone, that fear of being isolated, that fear of being left outside, all of that. God knows you perfectly and loves you still. And number three, failure is not an option with God. You are not a failure and when your life is hidden in his will and when Jesus is your king, you not will not, you cannot fail. You cannot fail at life. You might fail at a business endeavor. You might fail in some investment. You might fail in some social interaction. But you cannot fail in life if Jesus is your king. Today, God's promise to you is do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Father in heaven, the message for us today is a simple message and it is the message that you clearly are driving at in Scripture again and again and again and again and again and again and again because, Father, we are afraid. Our fears are varied. Our fears are diverse. Our fears are intimate. For many of us, our fears are private and personal. But, Father, we are afraid. And I pray that today that the Spirit of the living God and that the text of Scripture would speak into the lives of the living church, the modern church, the comfortable church, the Kingscliff church. Father, speak to this church and may they hear the words, do not be afraid, I am God. I have conquered death in my son Jesus. I know you perfectly and I know no failure. Do not be afraid. Father, give us the power to believe, to accept and to receive promise of the gift, not of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Let all of God's unafraid people say, amen. God bless you all. Hey, greetings from beautiful and sunny Kingscliff, Australia. I want to take just a moment of your time, first of all, to thank you for tuning in, watching the program. I trust it was a blessing to you and your soul, drawing you closer to God and His will for your life. I also want to let you know that we are planning a significant expansion of our existing media ministry here at the Kingscliff Church. To find out more about this expansion and how you can get involved, go to bringitkingscliff.com. You can go either to the homepage or to the Our Gifts page to find out how you can come alongside us and support, not just with your viewership, but also financially and with your prayers. Hey, thanks again so much for watching and take care.